Uh, tonight we were going to devote ourselves to the other side of the coin, which was the how the European Jews were developing into what we see now as the modern Jew. And uh, part of what they did in refashioning themselves was find other sources than the Talmud and the Medrash with which to identify themselves with. Some of it was non-Jewish, but in an interesting way, they went back and tried to rediscover models for themselves, even in other Jewish sources that up until that point had been ignored. What I mean to say is, um, besides Maimonides, who had had his share of uh, detractors, uh, there was also a lot of great Jewish poetry, a lot of great Jewish thought, that for years had been sort of ignored. And books like the Kuthari and other books were, they were once again being studied in the 17th century. Uh, books that had not been that popular for a couple hundred years, uh, that, that struck a very important chord at the time. But there was also a finding, and this was done by De Rossi, the Italian historiographer, he found the books of Philo, Judaeus, also known as Eudigia Alexandria, or Philon Alexandria, that were a book of a, of a Jew who lived in Alexandria, what we would call a very assimilated society, a society that many of the most learned people didn't even want proficient in Hebrew, yet saw themselves as, 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 as ethnically Jewish, yet they, um, they spoke Greek, they had a Hellenistic look at the world and sciences, and they applied a lot of that Hellenistic thought to the Torah. And Philo was a, was a leader of his community, and he wrote an allegorical interpretation and essays in the Torah that the Christian church fathers copied over, and they were the only carriers of these ideas for years and for years and years. That was translated from Greek to Latin, the books of Philo. Yet, the Jewish world was almost unaware of him and what he thought and how he viewed things. It was only really in the Renaissance period, in the 16th century, that Philo's books became known to Jews again because as the bonds loosened of the ghettos or allowed seepage in, they were able to go into the universities and actually find out about who Philo was. And when I first found out about Philo when I was uh, a teenager, I was very excited because here is uh, someone who lived at the same time as the Tanoim. He lived at the same time as Tanoim, was not a Tana. He lived and he wrote and he acted as a Jewish leader at that time. He was not a Talmudic Jew, but he was part of what even the Talmud knew was one of the greatest communities, the community of Alexandria. Talmud actually talks about the terrible destruction that occurred when that community was ravaged, and it talks about reasons why, but it also speaks about its beauty, 
the, the great synagogue that it had. It was modeled after uh, the Sanhedrin. They actually had a communal leadership. And, um, you know, it was a city of wisdom. And the fact that we have the writings of one of ours from that world, the question is, you know, what can we see from there? Uh, perhaps there are truths there that, that can spell out things for us when the words of the rabbis, we find them too difficult um, or we find them too cryptic. Another source from the past that the Renaissance Jew discovered was Josephus. And of course today you see Josephus translated. Josephus everywhere. Part of the reason Josephus uh, was the works were retained and the works were, were, were studied and preserved was because of the references to Christ and Jesus in those works. They were considered, therefore, a precious commodity because they ascertained that he existed. Now, it's possible, and, and, and a lot of scholarship points to this, that they, those were interpol, in, interpolations in the text anyway. They weren't actually Josephus' words there. But it was assumed that this was uh, another proof, and therefore the Christian church vener almost venerated the, the books of Josephus, and they kept the publishing of it alive, the complete works of Josephus. Um, the first edition that I bought, I bought it from a Christian bookstore, a Bible bookstore in Memphis, and that is the main publisher of the William Whitson edition of Josephus, all in one big volume also available online for free, I believe. Um, there have been more scholarly um, editions, the Rogue Translation and others, but it's pretty much been a, a work, although written by a Jew, uh, that hasn't been studied intensely by Jewish scholars, only in the last, and again, you know, of course, uh, today, you know, uh, the old history doesn't mean much to people. Um, but in the 16th century, Josephus was discovered again. Josephus was discovered by the Jews, and it's fascinating to see Josephus' take on things. In the 18th and 19th century, as the Jews tried to write their own history again, meaning they had to try to write works of Jewish history for the first time, uh, Josephus' work was one of the first places they turned to. And a debate ensued as to, was Josephus a religious man? Was Josephus lying about things that he did? Uh, can we trust him? Um, because many things in Josephus seem to contradict Talmudic law and seem to predict the way we, under, we have traditions from the rabbis. So again, we have these two counter sources, Josephus and Philo. And you, maybe you, you, you want to find in those things what you want to find in them. But I'm going to give people the benefit of the doubt and say, yeah, these are new, exciting sources. Let's see what it is that we can find out about it. There's no doubt to me, though, that the finding of these sources, in a way, unshackled people and allowed, at least the thinkers, and allowed them to see Judaism a little bit outside of the normal boundaries that had been contained in up until that point which was from the Bible, from the Torah, Mishnah, the Talmud, and the Medrash. Here we have another perspective. Um, 
sometimes at least gave them the courage to act differently. And therefore, I think the discovery of the ancients is, is the main theme of the Renaissance in general. That's the idea of the Renaissance is rebirth, <laughs> rediscovering the dark ages are over. It's not dark anymore. We're recreating. It was a romanticism that, that was probably incorrect. Like all romanticism, it's a powerful spur. That is, that we can find the truth that unifies all these, all these ideas. And all these ideas, perhaps, if we, if we gather enough of these ancient sources, we can use them to create a prism to look back to the complete light. Our problem is that we're only focusing on one thing. We take a look. Part of what the Renaissance wanted to do was to open people up to the different philosophies and find the unifying theme. The later scholars, the later scientific scholars, felt that that was that was not rigid enough. Um, you can't just lump everyone together anthropologically or intellectually. But and there was a time in the 16th century that this is what many Jews were doing and finding some truth, some universal truth, and therefore that allowed them to look into the Christian world, into the philosophic world, into the Greek world, and find some religion of intellect, a religion of, of reason. And somehow it's contained as the spirit behind all these great ideas. Again, it's not really what we would consider uh, the, the mode of the way a Jewish thinker should act, but we're trying to trace the, the development of the modern Jew. <laughs> as I said a couple of times ago, the, uh, there's a direct link between the discoveries in the Renaissance of, of Jewish history and about themselves and the reinventing of the modern Jew. I think that that's something that I, I, I would like to discuss with you guys tonight. Um, the piece in question of Josephus that was found by this Italian Jew and who brought it into Jewish learning was a piece that actually also reflects uh, on earthquakes and natural disasters. I want to share that with you. Um, in order to do that, however, I think we have to, you know, I, I want to first point out the, uh, you know, um, if you take a look at the, what, I, what, I, what I gave you here today, some, uh, it's over a month, I think, right? Today is a month since the, since the disaster. And, and again, it's probably been a, uh, it's been a weakening of interest, but still, I think that there's something that, that issues are still on people's minds. Uh, it's still in newspapers. What? It's still selling papers. I saw some newspapers there. There's a baby. There's a baby, and um, I think it's been a lot. Nine couples are playing with it. I've seen a lot of uh, stories that, that, you know, clearly, Evans hasn't. People, there's too much people, there's too many relief workers there, they don't know what to do, they're stealing the money, they're, and there's people politicking about it and uh, trying to use it for their own ends, which we sort of expected to happen. Um, you know, we were speaking here a couple of weeks ago about, you know, the responses to it, and we, of course, here you have, um, here you have uh, um, Jonathan Sachs. Did you read it? Did you like it? Yeah. Um, well, 
you know, some have pointed out that Jonathan Sachs is the, uh, he's the chief rabbi of, uh, of England that we've united a Hebrew congregations, which I think is the Orthodox, uh, Orthodox schools in, in London. Um, I've heard Jonathan Sachs, uh, I've heard some tapes from him. He's a very beautiful speaker. Have you heard, uh, have you heard him speak before? Yeah. Arnold, uh, has tapes from him. That's where the first time I heard one was I was driving, uh. Arnold was in charge of the tape library. That's right. I remember. And I, uh, on my way back from one of the times I was there at Scotland Residence, Arnold gave me a Calvin Sachs tape to listen to. And that was the first time I heard him. He really, uh, I don't know if this is one of his better pieces. Anyway, so this is just something to maybe set the tone. Um, it is the question of questions for religious belief. Why does God permit a tragedy such as the Indian Ocean tsunami? Why does he allow the innocent to suffer and the guiltless to die? It was just such a disaster, the Lisbon tragedy of all Saints Day, 1755, in which as many as 100,000 people died as a result of an earthquake followed by a tsunami and fire, that led Voltaire to write Candide, satirizing religious faith. The butt of his irony, Dr. Pangloss, is generally thought to be modeled on Gottfried Wilhelm Leibniz, the German philosopher who held that all is for the best in this best of all possible worlds. What incensed Voltaire was that there were religious believers who thought that the quake... Hi, Etsy. I bought a, a poster of Gat. He's messing my husband. All right. Um, anyway, what we've been reading about is uh, sort of we're discussing about responses, Jewish responses, uh, and that was offered in the 16th century to tragedy. And um, I mentioned that one of the sources that people look to is not only the rabbis but also old Jewish sources. Philo, Josephus. These were books that were written by Jews at the time of the Talmud, but were not part of the Talmud. These represent ancient Jewish, Jewish wisdom, perhaps, but not the wisdom that we call the wisdom of Chazal, but the wisdom of Jewish thinkers and the modern Jew, the modern mentality of the Jew, forged themselves not only out of the traditional places, but also these non-traditional places. Maybe he, it was more the Christian world, or the Western world, or the Enlightenment world that made this combination of the modern Jew that, that developed. The modern Jew that we talked about last week that felt educated, so upset about it. He felt really, he couldn't even deal with it. But I think it's important to realize, you know, where they called it from. And one of the issues, um, I think, that has to be, um, that probably was, strong in people's minds was what's going to be our attitude towards these types of events and these types of tragedies. Like we said a couple weeks ago with Halim, it doesn't necessarily have to be on the mass scale, <laughs> even on a small scale, even on the, uh, any any useless or silly death that, that we're finding ourselves unable to deal with. Um, if the answers provided for our system don't seem to be adequate, as you're going to see in, uh, as we read through these Sort of like a, a, a preparation for what we're going to talk about. But anyway, reading here, Jonathan Sachs is um, 
article. Um, but from what incensed Voltaire? Okay. What incensed Voltaire was that there were religious believers who thought that the quake represented God's anger at lived in sinful ways. See that on page one there? After all, uh, page one, so that's another common fact out there that every time. Yeah. yeah. After all, do the Old Testament speak of divine anger? What capacity is not interpreted as punishment against inflammation? Is there not justice in history? Okay. So that's as well. The religious people will be saying that because how could this happen? Right. Yet in the end, that interpretation was unsustainable. Why lose the not other cities? Why were the young, the frail, the saintly among the casualties? Even the most dogmatic found it hard to answer these questions. In any case, the suggestion is morally unacceptable. It blames the victims for their fate. And this is something that we were talking about a couple of weeks ago with Aline. After the Holocaust, such thoughts it ought to be unthinkable, because I guess what Jonathan Sachs is saying is because we know, after we know of so many millions that died that were clearly blameless in their lives, how could we even start to think about blaming them or blaming the society? Jews read the Bible differently. One of its striking features is that the most challenging questions about faith come not from unbelievers, but from the heroes of faith. Abraham asked, Shall not the judge of all the earth do justice? That was arguing for Sodom. Moses asked, Why have you done evil to this people? That's when Moshe said that in the very beginning of his mission, when things got worse after he went to Pharaoh the first time. The book of Job is dedicated to this question, and it's not Job's comforters who blamed his misfortunes on his sin, who were vindicated by heaven. Remember, Job had four people come to visit him. The first three, remember what happened to Job? Ideo, right? This is the story of human suffering. Ideo suffers terribly. He's exotic, and he loses his family, and he loses his children. He loses all his money. And three people come to visit Ideo, right? And they, they all have a way for Ideo to come to grips with what occurred to him. Most of it has to do with self-reflection on Eo's part, thinking how God is just. Um, but those, but it's, they were not vindicated by heaven, the Job, who constantly challenged God. In Judaism, faith lies in the question, not the answer. Okay, this is what Jonathan Sachs is saying. Again, I don't deny that Moshe and Avraham and Eo were all great men, and they all did question, but I'm not sure if faith lies in the question. <laughs> Maybe being a human being lies in the question. I'm not sure if that's where the faith is. Because the faith is in the question, not the answer. Earthquakes and tsunamis were known to the ancients, Job said. The pillars of the heavens quake and gas that is rebuked by his power he turned up the sea. David used them as a metaphor for fear itself. The waves of death swirled around him. The earth trembled and quaked. The foundations of the heavens shook. The valleys of the sea were exposed, and the foundations of the earth laid bare. In the midst of a storm at sea, Jonah prayed, Your wrath, your wrath lies heavily upon me. You have overwhelmed me with all your waves. So here you have men obviously seeing that God is behind the acts of nature, yet God saw the Leo that he, or that he, God, was not in the earthquake, or the whirlwind that destroyed but in the still small voice that healed. And remember what happened to Leovo at the end of his life. 
God actually causes winds and great noise to happen and scares you. But Hashem says, that's not where I am. I'm not contained in that power that's unleashed. To search for me, you have to go beyond that. Um, what distinguished the biblical prophets from their pagan predecessors was their refusal to see natural catastrophe as an independent force of evil. Proof that at least some of the gods are hostile to mankind. In other words, they refuse to see that there's something out there that represents an evil agent. In the ancient Babylonian creation myth, the Enuma Elish, for example, Tiamat, the goddess of the oceans, declares war on the rest of creation and is defeated only after a prolonged struggle against the younger god, Marduk. That's the, that's the Babylonian uh, sense. You have the goddess of the ocean who wants to destroy the world, and the younger god, Marduk, by the way, the source of Mordecai, Mordecai. That's an ancient Persian, Babylonian god. So Marduk wins, which means there are two gods fighting each other. That's a lot of what Zoroastrianism and a lot of the ancient religions were about, for these two fighting. Essential to monotheism is that conflict is not written as a fabric of the universe. That is what redeems tragedy and creates hope. That it's not like it always has to be this way. Um, okay. So now he quotes the Rambam. And he doesn't necessarily say where the Rambam says this. I would have liked to see the, the source. And again, this is an op-ed piece. This isn't a piece in a scholarly article. The simple explanation is that of the 12th century sage, Moses Maimonides. Natural disasters have no explanation other than God by placing them in a physical world set light within the parameters of the physical. This is a physical world. A physical world is dangerous. Planets are formed, earthquakes occur, and sometimes innocents die. To wish it were otherwise is in essence to wish that we were not physical beings at all. Then we would not know pleasure, desire, achievement, freedom, virtue, creativity, vulnerability, and love. We would be angels, God's computers, programs to sing his praise. So what he's saying here is, is that the world that God created has is finite, has problems in it. True, he placed us in it, but he's not necessarily pushing us and killing us. He's putting us in a world that is not a perfect world. He's on us. Well, again, he killed many, many died there, but again, if we would we he said if we would have a a world that there'd be no issues and no problems and everything would be utopian beauty. But then there wouldn't be any desire, there wouldn't be any achievement, freedom, virtue, creativity, vulnerability and love because it would just be like he says, it would just be angels. That's true, it's hard to say that to someone who loses a person in that situation. But this is what he's saying in the name of the Rambam. This is a physical world, and a physical world has parameters, and he placed us here, God. Now, essentially, humanity gains more out of being in this physical world fraught with danger than had they not been placed in this world. Humanity as a whole, not those people who died, but humanity as a whole. That's seemingly what the Rambam is saying. He says it's simple, but I don't think Jonathan Sachs investigates this issue now we can actually say something. The religious question is therefore not why did this happen, because we can't answer that, but what then shall we do? That is why in synagogues, churches, mosques, and temples, along with our prayers for the injured and the bereaved, we're asking people to donate money to assist the work of relief. Uh, the religious response is not to seek to understand and thereby to accept, 
fact, if we don't understand it, we can't accept it. That's not what a religious person says. We're not God. Instead, we are the people he has called on to be his partners in the work of creation. The only adequate religious response is to say, God, I, don't not, I do not know why this disaster has happened. But I do know what you want of us, to help to uplift and comfort the bereaved, send healing to the injured, and aid those who have lost their lives and homes. We cannot understand God, but we can strive to imitate his love and care. That is perhaps one more thing. Now here comes a little bit of a drop by Jonathan Sachs. After an earlier flood, in the days of Noah, God made his first covenant with mankind. Now remember, the flood was brought as a punishment, right? Again, Jonathan Sachs is on thin waters, as far as I'm concerned, because he's bringing up the flood. The flood is where God actually destroyed the world because he said everybody was evil. But anyway, so he says, the Bible says God has seen a world filled with violence. And asked, again, Timor is almost, and asked Noah to institute a social order that would honor human life as the image of God. Right, that's what we're supposed to do. In other words, after the time when Adam made the bris with Noah, Hashem made the bris with Noah, I'm sorry, Hashem said he put laws against murder and laws that weren't there by Adam. So there was a higher standard, seemingly because the world needed it, because once the world went awry before the flood, Hashem wanted to put stronger guidelines for the new world that was going to be developing. And that's right. He, so, therefore, not as an explanation of suffering, but as a response to it, I, that's Jonathan Sachs, will pray that in our collective grief, we renew the covenant of human solidarity, just like Noah did. Right? That's what happened. Hashem said, although he was, there's only, there are only a few people around, it's his, by the way, says, I should tell you that Noah and his sons, and a whole bunch of servants were saved too. It wasn't just Noah and his sons. There were the Nebezo there also. There was a small community that came out of the, 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 the ark, but God said, okay, this community, we're going to do it right. We're going to have a stronger sense of social justice, human solidarity. And having seen how small and vulnerable humanity is in the face of nature, might we not also see how small are the things that divide us and how tragic to add grief to grief. So this, is, this article was uh, quoted by a number of people on the Internet as a very positive response. And I don't deny to Kiddush Hashem that an Orthodox rabbi, um, a head Orthodox rabbi of England, uh, should have penned this, and many people quoted this in various go out where they call blog sites and chat rooms and things like that. Um, so, the, uh, however, again, I think it's a nice thing to say. I, it still doesn't strike me uh, as being in line with everything we know from what the rabbis are telling us. Um, I'm not saying I don't agree with this, but I do. I, I have to tell you that, you know, the, um, I don't know what the... Um, what the, uh, we talked about donations and things like that. I'm not sure where the donation level is up to. Um, I can tell you that there isn't, there has not been, and I hate saying this because I happen to feel that rabbis like myself gain nothing by bashing Haredim. And that's not what I'm about. I'm not about bashing anybody, but I can tell you that, you know, in the Yitzhak, which is the, newspaper, the English language newspaper of the Haredi world that is now, although 
know, it's, it's rivaling in its circulation now the Jewish press as uh, the paper for Orthodox Jews to read. And a number of um, responses, total responses to it, but none of them talked about giving money. None of them talked about digging deep and, and, and sending people or giving money. Um, and although Jonathan Sachs, Harvey Well here in the show and others, Bobich uh, set up, um, they I think are the, uh, it, it hasn't been an overwhelming response that way. There's been a lot of thinking about, thinking about God and thinking about being a better person, but not that many voices have been saying what Jonathan Sachs is saying over here. Um, and uh, I think that, and I, again, I didn't want to, I, I looked in the, uh, in the Ated's uh, letter section to see if anybody would challenge them on that, and I, you know, nobody did that, and far be it for me uh, to begin to do that. I, I, again, I said a couple weeks ago here that Jews should be at the forefront of giving money, and merely because otherwise we, can, we, we abandon our role as, as, as the life among the nations. So that's part of, you know, we can't start saying, well, you know, there are Jewish charities that are suffering. And there are. And there are definitely people who need money. And somebody would ask me, should you rather give money to Tsunami Relief or give money to Ania Yerichot here in Chicago uh, for people that can't have a shop at uh, people that are suffering and things like that. And, uh, you know, and not as a, as a, in a graphic and terrible way, that would be a tough call for me to ask. If somebody would tell me, I can either give money, I can either give, I have $1,000 to give. I can either give it to Tsunami Relief, I can give it uh, to help a number of poor families here in Chicago that are just struggling to make Shabbosim and don't have people to help them or meet them here. I couldn't tell you, though, Tsunami 100%. Give to Tsunami. That's right. I can't tell you that. Why can't you divide it? I'd say they're both, they're both as important. I can't say that. I can't say that with your conscience. Uh, I mean, um, I, I think that people who are giving checks, who are giving money, um, should give money to, to, to the to, to the to, to tsunami relief. I, I think there was basically what the Haredi uh, going on with the, uh, you know, the halakha and, you know, what we learned about uh, non-Jews as opposed to Jews. That's right. You know, with this. You know, the they're, not, they're not on our level. That's right. You know, according to them, I'm not going to, you know, say one way or the other, but there's big discussions right. about this, you know. Right. On Chavez, right. what do you, are you supposed to save a guy's life right. and want to save a power Chavez and all kinds of things. You know, so that's their basis and, and, and it just continues to their everyday life. Yeah, yeah. and I, again, I have to, like I said, as, as, you know, I, I cannot tell you, but I, I, I can tell you that if someone is writing out checks to the JUS and this, you should also be writing out a check to this. And there should be, just for the sake of Chul Hashem, that Jack is correct. Anyway, but it's good to see Jonathan Sachs out there. I'm happy he wrote this article, and I'm happy that, that people, even in the Christian world, can point to, you see what this rabbi from England wrote, and it's important for people to write that. I want to talk a little bit about Sapphire. Some people have said that Sapphire's poll, this came out on January 5th of 2005. Sapphire's article came out January 10th. Sapphire, by the way, has, has resigned. You know, he, his last article was Monday, now going away 
he's not going to go with New York Times, he's going to be doing other stuff now. And he mentioned in his, in his sign-off piece, he says, don't think I'm going away because, you know, I'm not at the top of my game anymore, because I just wrote this article on January 10th, and I got more response to it than almost any other article I've ever written. And this is the article that supposedly brought out so much response. Tonight, when I was getting this article for you, I, I, I saw that people had accused him of stealing it from Jonathan Sachs. Okay. But there's similarities, but we'll, we'll, let's see. Um, in the aftermath of a cataclysm, with pictures of parents sobbing over dead infants driven into human consciousness around the world, faith-shaking questions arise. Where was God? Why does a good and all-powerful deity permit such evil and grief to fall on so many thousands of innocents? What did these people do to deserve such suffering? So again, he quotes here of Voltaire and Lisbon, which many people besides Jonathan Sachs quoted also. After a similar natural disaster wiped out tens of thousands of lives in Lisbon in the 18th century, the philosopher Voltaire wrote Candide, savagely satirizing optimists who still found comfort and hope in God. It does sound pretty similar to Jonathan Sachs' intro, where Jonathan Sachs says, satirizing religious faith. Right? But he would have to be foolish to copy. It had to be somehow the same idea. Yeah, that's true. After last month's Indian Ocean tsunami, the same anguish questions in the minds of millions of religious believers. Turn to the book of Job in the Hebrew Bible. It was written some 2,500 years ago during what must have been a crisis of faith. Now, first of all, William Sapphire is not an Orthodox Jew <laughs> and a lot of rabbis. So he's saying Job was written 2,500 years ago, which would make it pretty much written at the time of, you know, a couple hundred years right, before Jesus, right? It would be at the time of the second base on Mikdash. That is what he's saying. Uh, the middle period when things were a little bit shaky. Now, we believe, of course, that Eov was written even before that, there's even a tradition that Eov might have been written in the time of Moshe Rabbein. Um, the words in Eov sound like they're written in a later time because they're the most difficult book in the Bible to read is the book of Job. That's why people read on Tisha books because it's so hard. That's one of the reasons. But also because Job, Eov. Yeah, the book of Job. And that's really, that's a, I actually learned it on Tisha Bob and give Shiurim on it on Tisha Bob. It's actually a great book and um, so we'll see. But anyway, he says it was written 2,500 years ago. The covenant with Abraham uh, worshipped the one God and the seed would be protected. Didn't seem to be working. The good died young, the wicked prospered. Where was the promised justice? The poet priest who wrote this book began with a dialogue between God and the Satan, then a kind of prosecuting angel. When God pointed to my servant Job, as most upright and devout, as Satan suggested, Job worshipped God only because he'd been given power and riches. Right? That's the very beginning of Eos, where he said Eos was good because he had all good life. On a bet that Job would stay faithful, God let the angel take the good man's possessions, kill his children, and afflict him with loathsome boils. The first point the book of Job made was that suffering is not evidence of sin. When Job's friends said that he must have done something awful to deserve such misery, the reader knows that's false. Job's suffering was a test of his faith, even as he grew angry with God for being unjust, wishing he could sue him in a court of law, he never abandoned his belief. And did this righteous Gentile get furious? Damn the day that I was born. 
Forget the so-called patience of Job. That legend is blown away by the shockingly irrelevant, irreverent, irreverent biblical narrative. Job's famous expression of meek acceptance in the 1611 King James Version, though he slayed me, yet will I trust in him, was a blatant misreading by nervous translators. Modern scholarship offers a much different translation. He may slay me, I'll not quaver. The point of Job's gutsy defiance of God's injustice, right there in the Bible, is that it is not blasphemous to challenge the highest authority when it inflicts a moral wrong. I titled a book on this, The First Dissidence. That's why I wrote a book on the book of Job. You can get it in the library. It's called The First Dissidence. Indeed, Job's demand that his unseen adversary show up at a trial with a written indictment gets an unexpected reaction. In a thunderous theophany, God appears before the startled man with the longest and most beautifully poetic speech attributed directly to him in Scripture. That's the very end of the eos. God shows up. Frankly, God's voice out of the whirlwind carries a message not all that satisfying to those wondering about moral mismanagement. Meaning, if you read the book of Eels, then what's the answer? Virginia Woolf wrote in her journal, I read the book of Job last night. I don't think God comes well out of it. The powerful voice, the man, the puny man, where were you when I laid the earth's foundation? Summoning an image of the mythic sea monster, symbolizing chaos, God asked, can't thou draw out Leviathan with a hook? trying to say what was God trying to tell Eo can he draw out the poet's priest point I think is that God is, ocu- is occupied bringing light to darkness imposing physical order on chaos which is what creation is and there is order there and leaves his human creations free to work out moral justice on their own which we don't believe is true because we were given the power but this is what Sapphire is saying Job's moral outrage caused God to appear we're supposed to be angry, thereby demonstrating that the sufferer who believes is never alone. Job abruptly stops complaining, and in a prosaic happy ending, that strikes me as tacked on by other sages so as to get the troublesome book accepted in the Hebrew canon. That's how Job gets his family back, and he gets new kids, and he gets money, right at the very end. He's rewarded. Christianity promises to rectify earthly injustice in an afterlife. Job's lessons for today. Number one, victims of this cataclysm in no way deserve the fate inflicted by the Leviathanic force of nature. Because Theo shows you people suffering, not because that they were doing something wrong with them. Two, questioning God's inscrutable ways. To question God, yeah, has an exemplar in the Bible and need not undermine faith. Just because you question God doesn't mean that you're not a religious person. Three, humanity's obligation to ameliorate injustice on earth is being expressed in the search of generosity, which again is Jonathan Sachs' point. People are that refute Voltaire's cynicism. Okay. That's what William Sapphire wrote. Now here's a letter that was penned the very same day that Sapphire wrote this article. I think he means he's saying is that we are meant to try to stop injustice. But look at the generosity. That's showing how we're trying to stop injustice. I, I happen to think that that it's a, it's a, it's a, I agree with you. If you're trying to say this, uh, that um, Jewel said, it's not just about writing a big check. Right? <laughs> writing a big check is not all that it's about. You know, it's going. It's, it's 
working your whole life to stop injustice. But obviously, it goes some way if you're willing to give of yourself to stop injustice. Because the cynicism is, is that, you know, there is no God, there is no goodness, etc. Here's a, here's a letter that somebody wrote in the New York Times the very same day. The editor. The theological anguish of religious apologists like William Sapphire over natural disaster with the tsunami always makes me wonder why they don't just accept the obvious conclusion that God does not exist. To be sure, there are always convoluted theological explanations for why predictions of a benign universe ruled by a loving deity are so often violated. But when scientific theories fail to agree with observation, they're modified or replaced by better theories. The accurate atheist prediction that such tragedies are natural occurrences bound to happen in a morally neutral universe as the virtue of avoiding such unnecessary psychological pain. So this is the response of you know, the scientific atheistic world. I just thought I'd back it off. There was a letter to this. So again, I think Sapphire as a secular Jew, but as a Jew who tries to be steeped in, in, in tradition, Jonathan Sachs is actually an Orthodox Jew. Uh, give us, I think, a very modern response. Uh, they are similar. I don't think that they. I think that they are. Uh, I think they are 21st and 20th century response. I don't believe that they are. Again, the Rambam notwithstanding. Um, I want to show you. I want to share with you Josephus's. What Josephus talked about. Um, and let us understand this. Let me see what we got here. I think I have to press the. Uh, this piece was brought to the attention of the Jewish world by a 16th century Italian historian, uh, Azariah de Rossi, who quoted it in response to the earthquake that had occurred in his town, in Ferrara, Italy, that he had described so interestingly and movingly. And he felt that he wanted to give his readers a response to these types of tragedies. And one of the things he quotes, although he disagrees with it, but he brings to the forefront of his readers to know about is the fact that it was Josephus, who quotes Herod the Great. Now, Herod the Great was the not, Josephus never knew Herod the Great. But the Herod was the one who heard this, who rebuilt the Beit HaMikdash. He was the uh, king who, um, thought that he was continuing the great tradition of the Hasmoneans, the Hashmanoim, but we know that he was not truly a Hashmanoim. He was not from that family. He was uh, he was a Idumean. He was an Edomite uh, who was forcefully converted. Eventually he gained power. He's a very aggressive person and um, he had very strange habits in his personal life. Uh, but he wanted um, to make whatever he had great. He wanted the temple to be great. He saw himself as loyal to Rome, and he ruled only because the Romans thought he was a decent ruler for them at the time. His child was a little bit better than him, um, was closer, but Herod was Herod killed people. He was a very rash person. Uh, in fact, Josephus, although he didn't know him, had enough records about him, and he, he delivers a very complex portrait of a person, Herod the Great. And, and Josephus is like the source for a lot of things about Gordus or Herod. This book that you see here, Yosef and Matthias Yohu, Josephus Flavius, 
is a description of the Roman war. The story of the Jewish, of the battle of the Jewish uh, wars with the Romans. This was written in Greek, it was written in Greek, and it was meant to describe to a Jewish audience that was assimilated, but more importantly to the Roman audience, the history of how the Jews were fighting, and they didn't really know. Many of the Romans, uh, you know, they were living far away from the battle. There was no CNN, there was no internet, there was no way to really know what was happening. Um, and he thought he would write a good, and it was a bestseller. It was a story of, if he had been a general, he had been a general in that war. He had actually fought on the opposition, he had been captured, and eventually he was saved, his life was saved, uh, by the Romans, and he became sort of a turncoat and a lackey for the Romans eventually. But originally he was part of the revolt, and therefore his perspective uh, was an interesting one. It's his description of the events at Masada that are the only basic documents that we have. You know, Masada has become, since then, right, Masada is that great place of, of Jewish courage. The speeches, if you I remember, you know, uh, this was about 25 years ago, they had the famous mini-series, Masada. I remember it was on uh, ABC, I think it was. It was a four or five-night mini-series. I mean, no big deal about it. Do you remember the Jewish? Yeah. So, uh, I remember the last When they're all dead? They're all dead, but then the Israeli Air Force flies over the plane. Oh, they, they take their old at Masada. Right. Masada. The last scene was switching from ancient from Masada to modern Masada. Peter O'Toole, I think, plays the, uh, remember Peter O'Toole played the, uh, the general, right? Who didn't want to go ahead with it? I think Peter Strauss was the, uh, El Azar was the, uh, but those were characters that really brought to life from Josephus. Josephus was the main source of the Masada story. So, we are indebted to him, but it, but, but there's also, you can't write history without writing philosophy and writing attitudes, I and mean, he, put his attitude into the words and ideas of his character. At least that is what he suspected of doing. So as much as he was writing a good yarn for the Romans, he was also trying to write them what they wanted, and he invested it with a lot of his own personality. It's hundreds and hundreds of pages. The book on the Roman Wars, this is it. This is it in Hebrew. I picked this up in Mexico City about 20-something years ago. And... Um, it was at the time that the uh, the pichut, as it was called, the uh, the dollar was so strong against the peso. I was able to get it right where I saw it. I was able to get it from the from the from the from the bookstore at the Acapulco Patenta in Polanco. Acapulco Patenta is not the city of Acapulco. It's a hundred Acapulco Street in Condesa, Mexico. So the show had a bookstore with a number of, uh, you know, not such products, more like history books and things like that. I was able to... I wish I could have <laughs> I wish. I, I, I hit myself in the head. All those pretty cheap to go down there, right? I know some people went this week. I know a bunch of Two couples that I know went down I don't know why. Did you go down? What? Do you know some people went to Acapulco? No. Uh, 
God has now punished or their God has now punished the whole land of Yehuda. They figure now is our time. We'll come in and we're going to now take over the land because, you know, God has emptied it out. I mean, they've heard about so many deaths. They started, even though they've been beaten, but now they, they, they took the strength of this and they started sending out their team. Who well, may say something before they started their next offensive, they did something against, you know, uh, diplomatic acceptable behavior. Zavkulohayan, they decided to offer to their gods as Tirei on Yehudim Hashemim to the Telcha. There were these ambassadors, these people who represented the Jewish, you know, sort of, you know, like officials that had immunity up until this point, but they decided to just go take them and and slaughter them to their gods. Hamona Yehudim Nivol Mitzmei Muhammadita. The Jews now, they, was, they were in a state of shock about the war that they're now going to have to fight again. They've been winning, but then this earthquake happened, and now the Arabs are very happy about this and killing and murdering people, just like, you know, taking people, beheading them and murdering them and killing them in the name of their God. He will come And because of what had occurred, they didn't have the psychological strength to fight. I sure his galgu of Zacharzeh because look what happened. You know, the earthquake, oh no, it's horrible. But who did decide? The king himself decided, Osokazanche, Halo, he says, let's get this army together. Then Nisa Lachazik of Jerusalem. And he says, I'm going to give him a speech and I'm going to get the army uh, up for the battle. And this is the speech that Wood has made. And again, I mean, before he came here, I mentioned that there's a theory so that many of these speeches that including the speech of El Azar and other things and, and Masada were, were the products of Josephus' imagination. And there wasn't necessarily records of it. But still, if it doesn't represent Hordes' ideas, it might represent Josephus' ideas. So let's see. This speech is really a speech about how to deal with disaster. So let's see what he says. Muzarat over very strange to me. He also saw a scam plus so shocked and you're so shattered. He will marry the boy of him, not to the path and the kill the It was just because of these plagues, which he's not saying God didn't cause. And that's why you're so upset. All right. Achvoyo, Tuanche Chayo, Wahamog, Mipaka, to come away among but you shouldn't be afraid that the Arabs are coming now. You want to be upset because of your friends that have been hurt, because of your families that have been hurt. Okay. But don't start getting scared about our enemies. I don't think we should necessarily go into hiding against our enemies because God hates us and he sent this earthquake and therefore we have to worry now. I actually think that the earthquake itself might actually be a way to trap these Arabs. Why? Look at them. He wrote the Queen Lokoma, Globa Koach Yemina, and Bot Chimapan. They haven't decided 
to use a better military strategy. They don't have any new weapons. The Imba also are their Koro What's giving them strength is they feel that God hates them. Because of this event that occurred, they, that's what's giving them. They haven't changed in one width. Their, 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 maybe their emotion, but not the way they fight. Achwishavi tikvatenach. Silly, it's foolish to think that they can win. Their hope. Achayen yisel debachelogur also. If they would go and, you know, and get new get new car builders and, and, and go in and get better fighters and get better weaponry. That'd be one thing. <laughs> the thing which they're hoping on is the fact that somehow our luck is gone, that the luck tide has turned against us, and this is a sign that, 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 that God in our disfavor. Tzara's happened, but they don't, they don't represent a pattern. Not, it doesn't mean we are now on the downslide. The God will almost Yeshua. And on the other side, if good things happen, they also don't continue forever. They don't, they don't indicate a nature. When good things happen, they don't indicate, oh, now there's a good seed. And when bad things happen, that doesn't mean, oh, we're going to be now, oh, get depressed because you're about to go in a bad turn. No. <laughs> the Kol Ayin Roet Sava, the Chalipos, the Goro Odom, the Tov Yaakov. He says, if you know what, you have to go back and see the events that happened up until now. The first time we fought with these Arabs, we beat them. The Afri came, so it's true, they beat us the second time. The But now I think this time they are going to be caught in their own plan. Because they're so confident that we are finished, that's going to undermine their carefulness that they need to have in war. When you're scared, that's Muhammad Eight of the Tahdua. That's when you start thinking of how to avoid. And they don't have that, which is good. <laughs> okay. Even though now you're scared, I actually take that as a good sign that you're so scared in one sense. Mosifli Why? The last time you went out, and just before, before you guys weren't listening to me, you were too confident. In a Mosolo Atinion, I'm not sure he is some sort of Anthony or somebody, Atinion, Athena, somebody, somebody from the Romans, Aethrosum, we'd go Bagat. He was, he was able to do some sort of, um, some sort of, uh, you know, uh, to be relegated to, um, to betray us. That you're so scared, I actually think that's good. Because before you guys were, were too cocky, too self-assured. Now, that's not Aruba where you want to go vacation. That's Aruba Tanitzachon. That to me is a guarantor of victory. Your attitude here, again, you see he's an amazing general. We just see this thing. He's actually building on, he knows there. So no, this caution is good, we can use it. 
our enemy is going to get over cautious, uh, over confident. Well, short term, maybe it's true, but long term, they lost, right? Well, I think they beat the Arabs. Short term, they won this battle. They won this battle. That's really the point. But he has to really deal with their depression over the gods facing against them. That's really why we're reading this. You can be like this for a while. But when the war starts, I want you to energize your your strength. You teach those bullyals. You teach those those infidels to believe. He rides for Adam. Even though you beat us once. Elohim, next page. Even though God smashed us. That's true. The earthquake happened. That cannot squash the Jewish strength as long as we have any life left in us. The Ishmi can base of the You're not gonna let some Arab control your house and control your property. After he's tried to take it uh, once or twice, now comes the earthquake part. The What are you scared about? You're scared that God hates us. You're scared that we're hated by God. Why? Because the earthquake happened. There's no life in those. That's true. The Isodos of the earth moved. But, but that was just the Isodos. That was just the physical world. The Alter Chashavu, Ki Arash, who owes the Moses, were Asom Chadash Ki Yavo. When you see the earthquake happen, you see, you see God hates us, who knows what else is in store? This is the beginning of a whole terrible series of bad events. Why? Ki Chuke HaTeva, True, bad things happen, but they are governed by natural laws. The chukim of the teva, that's what Moshe, the pigaya that Those are the things that govern when these physical bad things happen. The will you see the law be showed a law of that doesn't mean more bad things are going to happen. There's, there's an inherent nezik. There's aftershocks. There's whatever it is. But that doesn't mean, oh, there's going to be locusts and there's going to be enemies and there's going to be all these other things that's going to turn us down. No. True. The Isodos went against them. But it's over. Yeah. Oh, no. Yesha shayobo eza pegatao. There are certain things which are an indicator. When it happens, it looks like there might be pestilence coming or a hunger, but that's in the natural progression of things. But an earthquake doesn't mean that we're also going to get locusts and a band of killers. Every single atone that happens. Has to be taken in its measure and not to overstate it. Don't make it bigger than it is. Bob comes out, and there's another point. So here again is a very almost a modern scientific approach to the events that occurred. They were all depressed and upset, and Herod came out there, and we can see this put into Herod's mouth, 
30,000 Jews. That's a pretty, pretty big earthquake. Um, let's see what he says here. He mentions it here towards the bottom. Is it Gimel uh, on page 174? Right, that's the speech. That's where the speech begins. Right. Right. Where he talks about that you shouldn't be worried about an earthquake is, I think, on the next page. Um, oh, here it is.
Let's think about the evil that these men have done. Let's think about how they've killed our boys. Let's think about how bad they are. Believe in God. Yes, believe in God, but don't let that stop what needs to be done. If anything, say that God knows the right is on our side. If anything, take, take courage from the fact that you were saved, that God wants to spare you for the justice of this battle. Whatever God's reasons were, they stopped. So this is, again, like, as, as Eileen points out, this is more, perhaps, in line with, with a more modern mentality. I don't necessarily believe this represents the God. I know it's not the God of Hazal, but again, this was brought into the Jewish, this is a Jewish source, and it was something that, that the Ross could quote, but he's ugly, but I think it's a little too complicated for now. What I want to do, Bill, for, we've got a couple minutes here, what I want to, I want to actually share with you. I'm thinking, um, to, uh, and again, we talked before you came, before we talked about the use of alternate Jewish sources and, and how that eventually filters down. If we talk about 1500 to 1900, um, we can, I talked about this the first couple of classes, I talked about part of what put the inspiration into Italy and put the, inspiration, the power into Poland and other things was the worldwide interkarenishes that were going on, the revolutions, the things that were happening in terms of the expulsion of the Jews from Spain and things that were going and happening. And, and as, as terrible as those events were, they shot in, uh, uh, they shot a, a power of creativity into those new cultures, like in Italy and in Poland. And we talked about that quite a bit. But we haven't spoken about the other outposts of of creativity, of Jewish creativity, which wasn't in Europe, but was in Israel. We haven't spoken about what occurred as many of those people found their way to Israel, and especially to Tzvac, uh, and um, and I thought maybe, because it's, uh, it might be interesting for us, to, especially to appreciate the con- contributions of those Tzvac Jews, to talk a little bit about the other title. We talked about the first class, we talked about why what he did was so accepted, but we haven't really talked that much about him and about the culture that surrounded him. Now, we talked about how Modena and others quoted the Shulchan Aruch and how this was an important work, but we haven't done that much about him and about the Arizal and about all those other great men who lived in Tzvat. So I sort of want to hijack a little bit where we were going, which was Italy and Poland, and I want to shift up to, uh, to Israel. In order to do that, I'd like to share with you first, uh, first to tell you that online now you can get um, the Jewish Encyclopedia for free. It's not Encyclopedia Judaica. It's the Jewish Encyclopedia, and we probably know about it, from 1904, Jewish Encyclopedia, that one of the main editors was, we have it, was Louis Ginsburg. Yeah. Well, you can get it all now online. Do you know that? Do you know that? It's now available online? And you can actually search and you can... Uh, <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, I just got it. I got it for the two times. You went down there and got it? Yes, yeah, definitely. Uh-huh. It was the same one. Isn't the Universal 1920 or something? Yeah, not Universal. The Jewish Encyclopedia, 1904. I want to double check. I think I'm right. 1904. Okay, and this is page 8. 
I didn't get a chance to staple. Effie wasn't here, so I didn't hey. staple. So I wasn't able yeah. to staple. Okay, uh -huh. uh -huh. everybody on the page eight? Not yet. That's the round, Pearl. Keep it going. Okay, we got five, right. seven, eight. And I, I, I actually, um, anybody else? Okay. Did you can Okay, that's eight. Okay, everyone have eight? Okay, now nine. Okay, ready for nine. This is the part that everybody gets up, dresses their hands, like doing. This is, this is the aerobics for the nursing home set. Page nine. So, the exercise. Worry, we're going to be doing this. Have we got nine? No. Yes. Okay, everybody have nine? Seven, eight, nine? Yes. Yeah. All right, get ready for two more. Ten. I'm going to the Colwell. I can officially go to Kinko's, but that means I have to go to Kinko's. Remember that time you saw me going back and forth? I can go to Kinko's, but the Colwell has turned a blind eye and allowed me to make copies there. That's stuck right here. Everybody at page 10? Okay. 7, 8, 9, 10, and now. One more page. Page 11. Okay. So, um... Okay, now... We didn't really understand the... Basically, what I did today was to start off with, um, with uh, this op-ed article from Jonathan Sachs and William Sapphire okay. on the tsunami. 11. Everyone got an 11? Yeah. 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 Okay. And one second, one more. Twelve. One more. Okay. One more. Okay, everybody has a seven. Seven to twelve. Almost. I got one twenty-six. Okay, we're almost finished. We're going to finish in 15 minutes. 15 minutes. It's fine. I have 15 minutes. Okay. This is the focus on. How many do you have? 7 to 12. I got 20 of those. 4 of those. I'll give it to you. Okay. This is an article written by Louis Ginsburg. I wrote it in... It didn't come yeah. up in the copy. You can see I wrote Lewis Ginsburg down on the top. Okay, Lewis Ginsburg, of course, was a Pelzer. He was someone who was raised in a, a yeshivish person. He learned in Pels. Uh, he died, I guess, um, in the 1960s. When did he die? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and he was really, in many ways, uh, uh, you know, a kind of a prodigy. Uh, he left the yeshiva and he became, he was immediately embraced by, you know, conservative Judaism. I mean, when he jumped in with them, um, he was, Dr. Mishkin told me a lot of cute stories about Louis Ginsburg. Um, and he, for years, was sort of, he and Saul Lieberman, Charles Lieberman, were the two, you know, great 
minds of the Jewish theological seminary. They both written a lot of books and a lot of works, and they brought to the seminary a prestige and a, a certain authority that it was lacking up until that point, as it ever had. Because they had learned and studied, they had been, they, they, they knew what it meant to, to go through an idea and to understand it, to analyze it. Um, Ginsburg uh, did a lot of uh, editing of of Gaonic material, and he was a, a very prolific writer of articles. His major work, and, and Dr. Mishkin used to talk about how it didn't come out that great, was his his work on Yerushalmi. That he was uh, you know, he supposedly been working his whole life on the most comprehensive commentary on Yerushalmi. The point he is, I'm trying to make is, is that he was a person who knew the Torah world very well, and then became a interpreter to the conservative world of that world that he had come from, and he cast it in sometimes a, a light that it was not as right, it was not as left wing as the reform, obviously, and he had a lot of familiarity with the sources, but you, know, you wouldn't have accepted him in. in, in at all. But for the conservative, the, the, the students who are students of Ginsburg are generally more right-wing conservative. The, the, the scholars who, who studied under Ginsburg had a much more of an affinity to, to, to what we call orthodoxy, and they were closer to us in terms of their appreciation and learning and the sources and halakhic process. Still, that doesn't make them any less difficult and accepting, because in many ways, as we're going to read here, I'm going to show you some of Ginsburg's mistakes. And again, he was a very fine thinker, but you're going to see how everybody has an axe to grind. And we're going to see that Ginsburg is going to describe the Cairo. We'll see if his description is really accurate, or is it what he wants the of Cairo to be. But meanwhile, um, as you can see, he lived quite a long time. He was born in Spain or Portugal in 1488 and died in Spain in 
that his great, as you can see here, uh, the similarity between him and Jacob Beirav, the Meri Beirav. We'll talk about the Meri Beirav perhaps another time. But these, Meri Beirav's idea was to bring back smicha, was to, to have uh, a collection of rabbis who would be empowered to sort of be like a Sanhedrin. They, were a, they would be able to punish and, and, ju- and, and meet out the justice of the laws mentioned in the Mishnah and to actually be able to, to give makos and things like that because they, it would be like a Sanhedrin almost. Um, there was a lot of renewed interest in Beirab's plan when the State of Israel was formed because there were a number of rabbis who thought, hey, maybe since we're getting all the people coming back, maybe we should have mo- most of the scholars in the world were in Israel, and that was true, and it still remains true. It was true then, even when we had our Moshe Feinstein and others here, still most of the brain power was over there. Um, actually, there's even statements that Moshe Feinstein made in the 30s that indicate that he thought that there might be a, re- a reintroduction of Sanhedrin. Um, but anyway, the Maribe Rav and his plan had a lot to do with Rabbi Yosef Cairo. So Rabbi Yosef Cairo supported it. And he was one of the people that got smicha from the Maribe Rav. Now, smicha doesn't just mean like it means today when you go and you study in the Goki Shiva and you take a test at the Haran Salvation Club over Shalom and you sit through a couple of Shiva for a couple of years and you're called a rabbi or in some other places. Misha there meant that you were empowered with like an unbroken chain back to Moshe Rabbeinu, just like what Moshe did to Yoshua. It was considered a, a, a connection, the greatest connection you can have to the teachings of Moshe and Yoshua was getting Misha. And uh, it, it meant that you could have a right to sit in the Sanhedrin and maybe be involved in being being Mahabra the Chodesh and, and being Mahabra the Year. So it isn't just a right to be a practicing rabbi. This is what they were trying to do. They were trying to bring back ultimate authenticity and authority and the next logical step in that would be to interpret Jewish law like the Sanhedrin did in a way that would make it binding for all generations. So it really isn't... There's a lot of significance of bringing back the Sanhedrin and bringing back bringing back Smitha, um, they would be not only to institute judges and to punish and mete out judgment, but also the all many parts of Jewish law would begin to function again and um, you know, there would be a system, a system in place. So this was a very strong idea that my this fellow Jacob Beirab had. And he and the reason what brought it to that was his Discovery that most of the most of the scholars in the world are now moving to Israel. At least that's what they thought. And therefore, Israel in that period, in the 16th century, in the 1500s, although we talked about the great scholars that were living in Poland and the great scholars that were living in Italy, they thought we represent the great scholars of the world. Um, you know, and, and part of what could justify that claim was having a real Cairo and people like him and, uh, and the Arizal and Moses Alshech and others, um, the name that reads off like the, you know, the 27 Yankees, you know, it's like the, uh, 
right? Like all the heavy hitters. So, hurtful fucking. That's right. The 60 Pirates? Yeah. Wasn't the, uh, they were the, who was on the 60 Pirates? You, they, you think they you think they match up to Garrick and Ruth? They they match up to Garrick and Ruth? How about the sixty four Cardinals? That's not a bad team. All right. Gibson. But anyway, if you're going to write up an all-star team, sometimes you talk about Ryota Cairo, Vyutrup Vuri Ashkenazi, that reads out, Moshe Alsha. So anyway, so they thought, the Marie Beirav, you know, said, hey, we can do it. It can get done. Part of what this article that Ginsburg is writing is saying that both Cairo and Beirav thought big. They thought their period of something important, and they said, we can do great things. And they robbed idea, petered out, and we'll see why. But Cairo did it. Cairo wrote this great book. And part of what Ginsburg is going to say here, as we can read here, he says it was, he, was, he did great things because something was inspiring him. He used his intellect to the furthest capabilities, his, his, his ideas, and his skills as a thinker, but what was motivating him, as he says here in the first paragraph, he says, he probably met the enthusiast Solomon Mojo, who stimulated mystical tendencies. Solomon Mojo thought that the expulsion from Spain was an indicator that it was time for the Mashiach, and therefore Jews all over have to worry, have to move for the mess of Mashiach to come. When the latter died at the stake in 1532, Cairo also was filled to be a long longing to be consumed by the altar of the holy burnt offering that sanctified the name of God by a martyr's death. Cairo had fantastic dreams and visions, which he believed to be revelations from a higher being. We'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. Um, on the next paragraph, Rudy Ginsburg writes that um, Cairo is becoming an enthusiastic supporter of Beirab's plans for the restitution of ordination. After Beirab's death, Cairo tried to carry out these plans, ordaining his pupil, Moshe Alsha, but he finally gave up his endeavors, convinced that he could not overcome the opposition for ordination. However, now here again, here's a nice Ginsburg point. Compared to what opposition? We're going to talk about that, why they opposed it. But this is the type of thing which Ginsburg brought to the table that other conservative or non-religious scholars wouldn't notice. This is the Yeshiva Shachat. Look at this thing coming here in the parentheses. Compare his Catholic Mishnah on Sanhedrin, page 7. Compare his Catholic Mishnah on Sanhedrin 4, where his silence regarding the point is significant. That's the place where the Rambam supposedly gave the justification to reinstitute the Sanhedrin. The Rambam says, it seems to me this could be done. So that would have been a place where you think the Catholic Mishnah would have written something. So that's written by Cairo. He used it himself as a part of it. Why isn't why in the book that's meant to describe that, to describe why in the book that explains the Rambam, doesn't he put some of his own personal feelings there? Probably because by the time he got around to writing it, he knew that this was an issue that was unpopular, that he, he, shouldn't, be, he shouldn't write his, his support of it. And that's part of the reason why he says nothing. 
Um, but, however, his aspiration to be regarded as the highest authority in Judaism was practically realized. And maybe he didn't become the next head of the Sanhedrin, but through the power of the pen and the power of the printing press and the power of spreading the book was so well written and had such a great idea behind it, he did become, in a way, <laughs> the head of the Sanhedrin because he became the highest authority in Judaism, right? Because his, his reputation during the last 30 years of his life was greater than that of almost any other rabbi since Maimonides. The Italian, Azaria de Rossi, who we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, that was viewed differed widely from Kairos, collected money among the rich Italian Jews for the purpose of having the work of Kairos printed. He actually did. He was a distant cousin. I mentioned this. And he actually raised money. And the pole. <laughs> Moses Isserus, you know, Lady Ginsburg is also quite with it compelled the recognition of one of Cairo's decisions at Krakow. He compelled, said, you have to listen to the big Joseph, although he thought Cairo was wrong. In other words, part of, as you mentioned, if you remember a couple weeks ago, I said, part of the thing that made that book so successful was the fact the Ashkenazim accepted it. And the open, one of the Ashkenazim who could have challenged him, Moshe Isserus, actually felt he was just going to write a, uh, a, 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 a mapa, Ramah, Ramah, Shulchan Aruch. Right, so Moshe Isterus actually wrote notes to it, right? Remember, that's the Shulchan, and he wrote the mapa, which is the tablecloth, right? The, the Shulchan Aruch is the table set with all the laws. So Isterus said, well, Ashkenazim, we need a little bit more on that table, so we're going to put, I have a couple of points, and those points he refers to as the mapa, as the uh, as the tablecloth. Um, also, members of the community of, of, of Carpentras in France believe. Where is that? How do you say it? <laughs> yeah, sounds like the guy who was in uh, around the world in 80 days, right? Right. Carpentras. What was his name? That's Mexican. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about? I know you Right. You The butler. Right. Right. Carpentras. I think his name was. Right. Remember. Mike Todd. Right? When, uh-huh. some, right, when some members of the community of the Catherine Trots in France believe themselves to have been unjustly treated by the majority in the matter relating to taxes, they're in France and they're appealing to Cairo. <laughs> they split him Boston, right? So you see, they're, you know, they're a whole different culture, right? Again, uh, whose letter was sufficient to restore them to their rights. So you see that the whole world held a good. Here they are in France, they're running letters to everybody in France to pass in the Shiloh for them. In the East, Cairo's authority was possibly even greater. His name heads the decree of communication directed against Dawood, Joseph Nazi's agent. Um, and it was Cairo who condemned the Rossi's Morinayim to be burnt. <laughs> even though the Rossi had actually raised money for him, Cairo's death therefore caused general mourning and several funeral orations delivered on that occasion have been preserved. As you can see, these are all Italian stuff. Drash Moshe, Samuel Kastanellenbogen, who was the rabbi in Venice. So again, he dies in Italy, he dies in Israel, and in Italy they they they, they compose funeral form, as well as some elegies. Uh, this one that he mentioned here on page eight, uh, I happen to have uh, Judah Moscato's elegy. I was just looking at it the other day. Um, now, these are, so you see how amazing this is basically, you see that he was successful with this book to be considered the greatest rabbi since my mom, and maybe even beyond. Okay, now Kinsberg gives us his, the basics form. 
the first one is Beziose, the second one is Sholkanara, because you can see they're printed in Italy. That's where the printing presses were. Right? There were some in Spain that closed right at the Inquisition, and there were others that were in Turkey, but Italy was still the major port of Jewish printing. Even though Cairo was living in Israel, Italy was still responsible for, and we talked about this in previous classes, for all this stuff to be printed. Um, I, I mentioned here, by the way, you see I wrote a note here in the second, you can see my writing here. Hosha Mishpah was in 15th wrong here, it was finished in 1563. It says that the composition of Shulchan Aruch was completed at Bari, Palestine, 1555. If you take a look in, in the end of Hosha Mishpah, there is a date of 1563. Um, the Chubas, of course, were printed quite late. They were only printed um, in um, 1791. That, so he wasn't, even though he did box in Okay. I just want to leave us with one little thing tonight. Um, I want everybody to take this home and enjoy reading it, and we'll talk more about, about it next time. Again, I'm taking a little you turn away from where we were at, and I hope it's, it's understandable. Again, it's not the Jews of Europe as much as it is the Jews of the Asia. It's not clear. It's, uh, it's called Asia, isn't it? Technically, it's called, what, what continent is Israel on? Isn't it on Asia? No, no, it's Africa. Technically, Israel is in Asia. Asia. Yeah. So, again, um, on the bottom of page 8, uh, Ginsburg, and this will stop with this, Ginsburg from 8 uh, to 9, and including 10, talks about a book that you can... You don't really need this book to know who the Beit was as the Halachist. But this is the book called Magid Meshayim. It is a mystical diary of revelations that occurred to him. Now, the way they occurred to him was a spirit, a Magid. Not like a Magid like in Europe that could come and give speeches or pay back crumbs you know, the Rebbe should draw into the Magid, right, the Magid. These are heavenly Magid. These are actually a way, after living an amazing ascetic life, a lifestyle that you denied yourself, and, and you lived precious, but it was precious in Kedusha, and with a tremendous amount of learning and intensity and fervor, and pushing yourself to the limit, you reach a level where things become revealed to you. And Yubiyot of Cairo writes about how the Magid would speak through him. He would go into sort of like a trance state. And the angel, as it were, the Magid, this co-op, which was maybe something that his soul was connected to at some deep level, would actually speak using his voice and his... And this is... It wasn't coming from him. It was coming from this Magid. So... And I give all these people who can't but help appreciate what Cairo did and say, wow, this was the most amazing work. And we'll talk about why it was so amazing. But no one's ever written something like this. It's clarified. It's analyzed. He's so brilliant. Right? He's not. Right? <laughs> because he believes, this is what the, 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 the Moschewa believes, 
Did he write this? Did he actually believe that, that, that he had visions of people came and talked to him? And that he was going into a trance state, right? And, and he was in a seance, and all of a sudden this soul, this power was talking through him? Well, he wrote a whole book that's all the, all the, all the, you know. So either one of two things. Either, you know, he wrote a book of his own original ideas, but attributed it to a magi, and thought it was a magi talking, so he had delusions, right? So therefore, well, you see, so therefore everybody, all the modern people who come to, to, to give a, a, a estimation of this man, stop dead in their tracks and say, wow, this is really something we've got to talk about. In the 40s and 50s, as psychology became popular in the masses, right? Everybody was a psychologist. Everything's about psychology and all everything's about psychological things. Books started issuing of psychological studies that were the title. The, the market of Cairo, the lawyer of Cairo, then there were, there were intimations that he was homosexual. There were a lot of things about that in the, in, in the literature. You know, and there was all sorts of crazy sorts of analysis that was going on. Roblowski wrote a book. These were books that were, they started, I think it started in the 40s and the 50s. That, that was an explosion of, uh, that was just like the absurd, uh, you know, fascination that they had with this book because, you know, Ginsburg, even in 1904, had to deal with it because for still, for, for many years, it was bothering how could this, this great man have written this book because there was, a, there was an, there was such a, a, a hatred of the Kabbalah, there was a hatred of the mystical. There was a sense that the, the Maskeelum had that this is what's been making us, keeping us down. Part of what Moderna and Dorothy, in a lower way, ushered in was a critique of a lot of acceptance of the mystical way of the world that, the, that, that was rampant in Italy. And by the time the 19th century came around, it was considered a shameful thing, almost, uh, mysticism. And it was, it was, that's the primitive part of Judaism. That's the silly part. That's the part that believes in demons and the occult and ghosts and physics and stuff like that. And that's... Well, there's a lot of Well, it depends. You're right. There are, there are erotic images yeah, in some of the texts. But, but, but a lot of it was the fact of Chalcedon and against like If you read Grass's history, you'll see how negative he is. He can't see anything positive about anyone who was involved in Kabbalah. Kabbalah itself is a phony that, that was just a knockoff of philosophy, and it, was, it wasn't. And they tried to pass it off as some real wisdom, but it really isn't. So those are the people that were on the distant shops of Judaism. They were the ones who wrote the science of Judaism, and they were the people who were pushing the Jewish encyclopedias and other things like that. So Ginsburg here has to deal with these figures. This is the first thing I'm going to take head on. What are we going to do with the of Cairo being a Makobo? Is he a Makobo? Right. So what are you going to get? So Ginsburg says, um, Cairo says his work, but Cairo's character has been variously criticized, the bottom of page eight. The difference of opinion being connected with the literary question whether the book Magid Masham is really a work by Cairo or merely a scribe to him. This book is a kind of diary in which Cairo during a period of 50 years noted his discussions with his heavenly mentor, the personified Mishnah. He had these visions 
at Nicopolis, somewhere I guess in Greece or someplace on the way there, um, the discussion treat of page 9, a various subject, the market joins Cairo to be modest in the extreme, to say it's prayer to them with devotion, to be gentle and patient. Oh, it's pretty good advice. Doesn't sound like some crazy mystical stuff to do. A special stress is laid on asceticism, carries off a severe rebuke for taking more than one glass of wine. Um, how many wives? How many wives? They died. They died. His two wives died. Yeah. There's two wives. Does that, does, okay, not a kind of a... Uh, they died, honey. They died. They died. They died. They died. They died. They died. But basically what, what, <laughs> well basically what, uh, what, um, take a look at the bottom page nine. He says, he says, yeah. Just as Maimonides' Yad gives no indication that its author ranked Aristotle immediately after the prophets, so Cairo in his works does not betray his leaning toward Shakespeare. Of course, he considers it still to be a work in the time of Shakespeare thought, and a holy book that, however, has little or no importance for religious practice, which must be ruled exclusively by the Talmud. This is an oversimplification of, his, of Cairo's opinion. Cairo's mysticism this is a, was not speculative in nature. He devoted very little time to the Kabbalah, although his mind often exhorted him not to neglect the study of it. The catastrophe that came upon the Pyrenean Jews as the expulsion in Spain made such an impression upon the minds of the best among them that many saw there in the signs of Kabbalah and Mashiach. Now, you can't blame him for thinking he was living in Messianic times. And Cairo, according to his contemporary, took this dark view throughout his life. While men like Molko and David Rubani were left to commit extravagant and foolish deeds, they wanted them to die on Kiddush Hashem, they robbed and Cairo's nobility of nature came to the fore. If Cairo indulged in mystical visions and half-dreaming, thought he heard heavenly voices in his soul, they served there always as reminders to him that his life, his actions, and his accomplishments must surpass those of other people. Cairo's mysticism stimulated rather than hindered his activity, urging him on to great works. So basically what Ginsburg is saying is, yeah, okay, he was that was nutty. But you can't blame him for thinking he was living in, in, in very important times. And even if he even if he was confused, and Ginsburg can't admit that he was a Makoko and a Sonic and a Kantos, and this does happen to holy people, which is what a Makoko will tell you is true. He says, No, I don't believe in that. But who cares? Did it make Cairo better? Did he, be, did he want to become stronger? Who cares what sort of Mishagas was behind him? This is what Ginsburg is saying. And therefore, there's all these other, my other friends in the, in the, in the, in the world of academia, they say, oh, this is such a blotch on him. How could he have ever been this way? This is so bad. Okay, right? so, you know what? Look at what he produced. How much is mysticism a part of that? It's a negligible part. But if anything, you could say, he rode the wave of mysticism to do something great. So this is what Ginsburg's approach here is in the deal with Cairo. It's not what I believe, 
it represents a better treatment than he'd gotten up until that point. And Ginsburg, of course, loves him, and that's part of the reason why he's saying, see the positive things. When I will, next time we'll talk about Bershutchem, we'll talk about, we'll go through this a little more, um, and I will show you my own response to Ginsburg based on the actual sources, as opposed to taking his view. One of the problems that, uh, you know, you can't be too smart in writing an encyclopedia. Part of writing an encyclopedia is being vanilla. It's just giving you the fact. When you have, um, uh, when you have a, a, an axe to grind, or you have a, a theory, you know, that's not, the encyclopedia article is no room for that. In, in the medical field, you know that's true, right? You're not, you don't read the medical, uh, whatever that handbook is, to see some of the theories. It's only in the things which everybody accepts. Maybe you want to see a source. So we'll see Mr. Shem take these pages, enjoy them. Next time we'll do a little bit more. I know today we were all over the place. But um, from Jonathan Sachs, the woman's staff fire, to Azari de Rossi, Louis Ginsburg. What? How are we going to remember the Take it with you. Take it with you and read it. Enjoy it. We got. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to give you this one.